Here on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, you can find all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. You have a great bishop, by the way. Yeah, I knew him back when he was a chaplain at Texas A&M, and uh, it's a blessing. I'm coming back, actually, to Tulsa. So I'm coming next year in August for your, I forget what it's called. It's like your August catechetical conference that you do. So I did that back in, I think, 2018 or so. So I'll be back. Uh, so I'll get to see you all then. I want to talk about a couple things here. So the heart of what I'm going to talk about is going to be this role of the interior life for our ministry. But I'm going to ask a question here. How many people are married? Anyone married here? Okay, so I'm going to, I want to say a few words about marriage. And it will be, I'll connect it eventually back to to what we're doing in our apostolic work. But I want to say a few words about marriage. Why don't we start off with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the two things I'm going to share with you from our, our two of my more recent books, uh, the heart of what we're going to do is going to be on this brand new book I wrote called When You Pray. It's 30 reflections to use in prayer on the themes of trust, surrender, and the transformation of our souls. Um, but I wanted to just share a few little insights from a book my wife and I wrote on marriage. You're going to love the title. So those of you that have been married more than a week, uh, you'll love the title. It's called The Good the messy and the beautiful, <laughs> the joys and struggles of real married life. Uh, and we emphasize that real because a lot of people don't talk about the real. They, they talk about like marriage is amazing. How many of you heard of theology of the body? You heard of theology, oh, theology of the body, great, you know, theology of marriage. And that's all great. But real married life is, is beautiful but also really demanding and really messy. Uh, I've, I've worked with our focus missionaries over the years and you meet these young people and it's, they're, they're so awesome, right? They, I mean, they love Jesus, they pray, they go to Eucharistic adoration, they follow the church and then they get married and they think, okay, we're, we're gonna do marriage the Catholic way. We're not gonna follow the rest of the world. We're gonna follow, you know, what Jesus says about these things. And we love Jesus and we go to adoration, we pray, you know, yeah, we're gonna have troubles and marriage is hard, but you know, we're, we're gonna, we're, we have Jesus. It's gonna be all fine. And then about three years into their marriage or maybe two kids in their marriage, they're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea how hard this was gonna be. <laughs> and there's, you know, they, they hurt each other, there could be fighting, there could be disappointment and not connecting and misunderstanding. And my wife and I, we do a lot of marriage mentoring and, you know, so they come like, what's happening? Like they're pressing the panic. Are we the only ones? We're like, we just smile, oh, welcome to the club. <laughs> that just means the sacrament's working. <laughs> this is good. You know, because really in the end, nothing can really prepare you for your marriage. It reminds me of a story, a true story, when a friend of mine got married, he was in the sacristy, you know, all in his tuxedo, they're getting ready to start the marriage ceremony, and the best man came back to the sacristy to check on my friend. And the best man, he himself had been married a number of years, had three kids, and he goes back in the sacristy, he looks at my friend, smiles, and then just starts laughing at him. <laughs> and my friend's over here going, what, 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 why are you laughing at me? And the guy who had been married for a while says, that's just it. You don't know. Because <laughs> right, nothing can really prepare you for this. Uh, a story I'll share with you. My, my wife and I, we like to ask young couples after their first year of marriage or so, um, what's their biggest surprise? 
like in their marriage? Like what's been the biggest surprise, unexpected challenge that they've experienced? And so we had a couple over and they had been away from Denver for a while, but they were passing through town. We ended up for dinner and we go sit by the fireplace. We're having some wine together and we're sitting down and I asked that question. Uh, so what's been the biggest surprise challenge? And without any hesitation, the wife says, oh, I know, it's his socks. His socks are the biggest challenge. <laughs> and we're all laughing. And she tells the story about how when they were engaged and she's you know, helping him pack up his apartment and uh, she would go into the apartment and find socks everywhere. They're on the floor, they're under the couch, they're in the couch, they're on the bookshelf. <laughs> they're in the kitchen. They're in a kitchen cabinet. I mean, there's like everywhere, these socks. And she's like, you're, you're going to take care of your socks when we're married, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, she's a very type A personality, very organized and, you know, real go-getter. And um, he's opposite. He was the sanguine, free spirit kind of guy. So you can imagine where this is going, right? So they get married. And within a few months of their marriage, there's socks everywhere. And it's driving her crazy. <laughs> and, and one day she, you know, she's going up and down the steps and she, he keeps leaving his socks here and she's picking them up all the time, putting them away. And finally, one day she just goes, I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm just going to leave the sock here and see if he notices. And he comes down the stairs and sees the sock. Oh yeah, I got to get my sock. I'll, I'll get that on the way back up. But he goes and gets his coffee. He goes back up and forgets the sock. You know, a day goes by and then the next day he goes, oh yeah, I got to get that sock. Oh yeah, I, I, I got this meeting. I got to get my Zoom meeting. He's always, I'll get it after the meeting and he forgets. Finally on day three, that same sock has been sitting there for three days and he goes downstairs and he realizes, oh wait, that sock is still there. She knows it's still there. She's testing me. <laughs> so we're all having a big laugh about this. And then in the middle of this conversation, I said the most ridiculous thing in a certain way. It was crazy. Um, so we're all laughing. All of a sudden I said to, I said to the wife, I said, you know what? That sock, that sock is like a mini tabernacle in your marriage. And everyone's looking at me, including my wife, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you know, in the, in the church, you have the gold box, the real tabernacle that has the sacred hosts, the real body, blood, soul, and divinity. And we draw near to the real presence of Jesus. We kneel down, we, we bow, we, we, we spend time, you know, we, we, we encounter Christ in the real tabernacles of this world. The sock is just a, by way of analogy is, is another kind of place of encounter. It's not the body, blood, and soul, and divinity of Christ, but, but it's a place where we're meant to encounter Jesus and whatever that sock is in your marriage. <laughs> like this isn't just like a little problem to be solved, a little annoyance. This is a place where Jesus is inviting us to genuflect. He's inviting us to, to, to change our hearts and to love him in the midst of this little difficulty. And every marriage has that. It could be socks. It could be how you do the dishes or don't do the dishes. It could be how you discipline the kids. It could be how you spend the money. We all have little things like that. And there could be bigger things. It's how you talk to me, how you don't talk to me, how you don't listen, how I don't feel like you're caring for my heart. It could be like deeper things. We all have these things that come up in our marriage because as much as we may love Jesus, be involved in our parish, be involved in apostolic work, we have original sin and we bring that into our marriages and, and, and there could be friction and hurt feelings and disappointment. And yet that's, that's, that means that that's the part of the, where the sacrament's working, where Jesus is inviting us in those difficult moments to love more like he loves 
And that's what I shared with that young couple that day is that whatever that little thing is in your marriage or the multiple things in your marriage, those are places that Jesus wants to encounter us. They're not just little annoyances, not just problems to be solved. They're places of encounter where Jesus is inviting us to love in a new way. So I said to the young gal, I go, so Jesus is inviting you to love like he loved, like to be patient with your husband, to be merciful, to be kind. You may still need to call him on it. That's love too. There's a tough side to love. You may need to you know, tell him he needs to take care of his sock, remind him of it, but you're doing it with great mercy. Are you coming from a place of honor and gratitude for your husband, even in the midst of his weakness? Because God loves us in the midst of our weakness. And then I said to the young man, and, and, and God's inviting you to be more virtuous and to take care of your socks, <laughs> you know, out of, out of, not for yourself. You're not doing it for you. Maybe you like, don't, don't, don't feel like you need to organize your socks well, but out of love for your spouse who cares about this and it matters more to her than it does to you. You're going to do something that you don't think matters as much or it's not a priority for you, but you make it a priority because you love your spouse and Jesus made you a priority when you were a mess too. <laughs> yeah, and so like, this is what we want to think about because have you ever heard that expression, um, like what the purpose of marriage is, Catholic marriage? Like what is your goal? When a young couple gets married, they're told like your, your, your mission is to do what? Get your spouse to heaven. Y'all heard that, right? I, I, what is your mission? To get your spouse to heaven. When I was newly married, I remember hearing that and I was like, oh yeah, that's my job. I'm going to help Beth get to heaven. I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to sacrifice for her. I'm going to help her get to heaven. I'm going to make sure she gets time for prayer. I'm going to lead the family in prayer, make my home a domestic church. I'm going to help my family get to heaven, help my wife get to heaven. And, and that's all good. And God can use that. But the main way I've realized over the years, the main way I help Beth get to heaven is this. Every day of her life, Beth Sri has to deal with me. <laughs> He's got it. She's got to deal with all of my quirks, all of my pride, my selfishness, my um, my sin, my weaknesses, the, all the things that keep me from loving her. She gets centuries off of purgatory, I'm sure. And when we give this talk together, like we laugh and she goes, she'll get up here and go, yeah, and I do the same thing to him. You know? But 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 this is this is in some sense kind of funny, but it's it's real that through us being thrown together two weak, sinful people, God, through that process, is teaching us to love like he loves. Think about how Jesus loved on Good Friday. I mean, Jesus, on Good Friday, he wasn't appreciated. He came to teach these people, to serve them, to heal them, and to save their eternal souls. He died for them, and he was not appreciated. He was misunderstood by the people he came to save. So lots of misunderstanding. He was let down, like the, the people that like, were closest to him, his disciples, he, you know, the people he, he thought I could lean on these people. I thought this was, these are my best friends. They weren't there to lean on. There were, there were times uh, uh, throughout the ministry, but especially on Good Friday, where the people that he, he thought were closest to him were far away and he couldn't lean on them. He couldn't trust them. There are times where he had to forgive. He had to forgive these people. There are times where on Good Friday, many times where there were hurtful words spoken. There were hurtful actions. There are many times he felt very alone. Do you ever feel that way in marriage? That's marriage right there. Now marriage is more than that. 
But in marriage, are, uh, maybe this doesn't happen in Tulsa, but are there ever, can I just ask, are there ever misunderstandings in marriages in Tulsa? <laughs> ever times when you, know, you feel not appreciated by your spouse, not understood by your spouse? Times when you, you felt like you, you thought your spouse would be there for you and this just wasn't, couldn't understand or couldn't enter into it or were too busy, too distracted, whatever, they just weren't there for you. And, and I don't, I'm just gonna throw this out there. Are there ever hurtful words spoken in Tulsa Catholic marriages? I mean, you guys all, you know, you're, you're, you're the cream of the crop. You're coming out on a Friday at noon to hear a Catholic talk. So maybe that doesn't happen to all of you because you're so holy at all. But, but I'll say it happens in my marriage. And in that process, when those things happen, we could just view them as frustrating or, oh, so sad. And, and, and oh, we just got to fix this. And, and it might be frustrating and it might be really sad. And we might need to actually think about how we fix what's going on in the marriage. Nevertheless, and this happens in all marriages to varying degrees. All of us have these little struggles and sometimes bigger struggles. But do we see them as places of encounter, many tabernacles where Jesus is inviting me to love like he loved on Good Friday? Because when he was not appreciated, misunderstood, when his people weren't there for him and there were hurtful words and hurtful actions, what happened? He still loved. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Isn't that what happens in marriage? We hurt each other. We don't want to hurt each other. I love my wife, but I hurt her. I, know, I feel badly that I do. <laughs> but it's not like I wake up on Monday morning. How can I make Beth Sri's life miserable today? <laughs> you know, so much of what happens in marriage is we, we, we don't know what we're doing. And we're called to love, to be patient. And that, sometimes that love involves tough love. I need to call you on this. You need to stop doing this. When you do this, it makes me feel like this. We might need to call people on this, but we always want to have it with a forgiving heart. That's why my wife, Beth, she always prays to the Father, Father, forgive Ted. He never knows what he's doing. <laughs> so, the, but this is, this is really, you know, what marriage ultimately is all about. I think about how, you know, at the wedding at Cana, there's a great analogy here. You know, at the wedding at Cana, there was this initial wine, do you remember? And what happened to that wine? It ran out. It was good wine. I mean, people, it was, they loved this wine and it ran out. It couldn't sustain, it didn't go the distance. And what had to happen? Jesus steps in and then from nothing, he provides amazing amounts of wine. Do you know how much wine he made, by the way? It tells us six stone jars of purification. They filled them up to the brim. Do you know how many gallons are in a, a stone jar? About, a, about 20 gallons. There were six of them. He made over 120 gallons of wine. That's a party. <laughs> but it wasn't just that he made a lot of wine. Do you remember, what did they say about the wine? It was better than the first. This is what happens when we fall in love. You know, there's that initial love that brings a young couple together. It's so fun. Do you ever see these young couples? They're like falling in love and they're dating and then they're engaged and then they're newly married and just like, they're just glowing, right? And it's awesome because there's that initial love of attraction and all the rush of emotions, romantic feelings. And God uses that to bring us together. But it's like the first wine at Cana. It will not last. Again, I'm just going to throw this out there. I mean, do you, do you live in bliss with your spouse 24-7? Has that happened with Catholic marriages in Tulsa? You just sit around and sip red wine and gaze in each other's eyes. I just love you. <laughs> I mean, maybe on date night you get that, you know, but, but, but most of life is just, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, so that, that initial spark of attraction that brought us together, 
does not last. And I think a lot of couples in their, in their marriages, they go, I just, why isn't it like it was before? How come you, you know, we don't love each other like we did before? And it's looking backwards. At Cana, they could have just been looking backwards, but what happened is in the midst of their lack, Jesus stepped in and helped them to look forward. Yes, something was missing, but he comes into the, to the wedding feast and creates something that will go the distance and it's even better than before. And that's the process of what God does in the sacrament of marriage. And we wanna be asking ourselves in our marriage, this is what I wanna invite you to, and we're gonna talk about prayer next. I want you to think for those that are married, where are you right now in your marriage? And what's the next step God is calling you to in our marriage? Because our love is meant to go on a journey and it's not going backwards to, oh, how do we rekindle those feelings? No, no, it's about what's the deeper love that he's calling us to do, to love like Jesus on the cross more. Because on the cross, it's not about feelings, right? Jesus, that's, that's perfect love. The fullest revelation of love is Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus isn't saying, you make me feel so good. <laughs> it can hurt sometimes, but it's through sacrifice for the other and the other sacrificing for us. And we may want the other to sacrifice more for us than we feel like we're sacrificing for them. But it's in the mutual sacrifice that comes greater trust, greater intimacy, greater union, a deeper friendship, a deeper love. And God wants to take our love on a journey and transform it through the sacrament. He gives us the grace to love when we feel like I have nothing left to give. I'm overwhelmed with the kids. I've tried to bring this up with my husband and he just doesn't understand. And she just does, she doesn't appreciate all that I'm going through. We have all these things in our head where they keep us from the union God wants us to have. Those thoughts in our head are not from God, they're from the devil who wants to divide and keep us just where we are in our marriage. What's the next step? What is God inviting you to? Where do you need healing in your marriage? Where do you need greater forgiveness in your marriage? Where is God inviting you to honor your spouse more, to express more gratitude more, to serve more, to, to stop just saying this, it's about the other person? And what is God inviting you to do to enrich your marriage? This is Jesus wanting to step in and create the good wine in your marriage. And that's his plan for us. Now, why did I talk about marriage? Well, probably because I'm thinking about it with the book on it, so I'm thinking a lot about marriage. But for those of us in ministry that are married, we could be thinking about it's, you know, it's what I'm doing with the kids and what I'm doing with the youth group, what I'm doing with RCAA, what I'm doing with the Bible study. That that that's 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 my apostolic work. That's what matters. But what we're gonna see is what what, what I'm doing out here flows from my interior life and it's gonna flow from my vocation. If I'm called to marriage and I'm doing all this amazing work in the, in the parish, but things are struggling here at home. If they're struggling here at home, don't be discouraged because all of our marriages go through seasons of struggle and our family lives are not perfect. We all have that. The question is, what am I gonna do about it? Am I gonna give this attention or am I thinking more about the RCAA class? Or am I thinking more about the Bible study group and the fellowship I have with people there when I don't have close fellowship right here at home? Because all that I'm doing out here is if I'm not living my vocation well, God's not gonna be able to use me as the instrument he wants me to be. So we need for those of us called to marriage and we're in ministry to make that priority of our married life and say, I need to love here. I need to grow in love here. And, and that will, uh, I could be a more effective instrument for the work out there. Amen? Okay, now I wanna tell you something fun here. I wanna talk about, I wanna talk about uh, our interior life Hey, tell me about what happens if you take an iron rod and you put it into fire? What's going to happen to that rod? It becomes hot. Okay, it used to be a cold rod. Now it becomes hot. What else happens to it? 
Because softer, okay. What else? What color was the iron rod before? Black, charcoal gray, right? What happens to its color? It starts becoming yellow, orange, red. In other words, what's happening is the iron rod, when placed in fire, begins to take on the property of fire. It begins to take on the characteristic of fire. And, and I share this because the Christian life isn't about simply doing the right things, saying the right things, believing the right things. We have to do all that. That's essential. But it's even more about the transformation. Our walk as a disciple is about being transformed. I think about what um, Branson, when he introduced me, there was, you know, he gave a very brief bio. I was kind of disappointed that he didn't mention something in my bio. He didn't put that, there was that line in the bio that talks about Dr. Shri is an amazing basketball player. <laughs> he left that out. Did you know that about me, by the way? I'm really good at basketball. Now, if you were to ask me, Dr. Shree, what makes you so good at basketball? What would you think if I said to you, oh, what makes me an amazing basketball player is that I'm really, really good at following all the rules. Oh, I am so good at basketball. I don't ever go out of bounds. I don't double dribble. I don't travel with the basketball. I'm amazing. I mean, LeBron needs a guy like me to get one more ring. I mean, yeah, you all are laughing at me, as you should, because you know that simply following the rules doesn't make one a great basketball player. If I don't have the skill of shooting and dribbling and blocking out, I'm never going to be a great basketball player, no matter how much I follow the rules. And the same is true in our walk with Jesus, that Jesus doesn't want us to be just rule followers. He wants us to be lovers. He wants us to be transformed in our hearts. And I could, it's easy for me to like kind of just pat myself on the back for, you know, I, I believe in God. I mean, okay, that puts me in the 60th percentile in the United States. You know, I really believe in God. And I go to church. Wow, 65 percentile. I go to church every Sunday. Whoa, 69th percentile. Even those holy days of obligation. Oh, wow, now I'm up to 85%. This is amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm doing really well here. And, and again, don't get me wrong. We need to go to church. But let's not congratulate ourselves for that. Same thing, I could go, oh, oh, you know what? And I, you know, I volunteer at the parish. Okay, now I'm like 89th percentile. You know, I, I, I lead ministries in the parish. Okay, 92nd percentile. Um, I, I, I give a lot of money to the church. You know, I donate and my, my, my treasure and, and of my time. Okay, 95th percentile. I even believe all of those, the teachings of the church, even those tough moral things that are out there in the culture that nobody believes in. Oh, 99th percentile here. Let's not congratulate. I mean, again, I want to be clear. You have to believe everything the church teaches and we, we need to go to church on Sunday and all the holy days of obligation. And, and it's awesome to do these ministries and all these things. But that's just kind of like the basics. Simply following the rules is just like permission to play. I, if I want to be a true Christian disciple, this is what I want. I want to be transformed by the fire of God's love. God's love is meant to change me, to transform me. Uh, I want to, this is what St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite passages from St. Paul. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, we are being changed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another. And so what I want to ask myself is, do I, do I love like Jesus loves? That's the standard. It's not, do I follow the rules? You know, if I want to, am I a great basketball player? Can I shoot the ball like Steph Carey? That's like the, the high standard. I'm, I'm comparing there. It's not, 
Oh, I stay in bounds like Steph Curry. <laughs> you know, I, 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 do I love like Jesus loved? Do I forgive like he forgives? Am I patient like he's patient? Am I generous like he's generous? I, I want to be looking at, am I, am, I being, am I being changed? And all those weaknesses that weigh me down, those sins I keep bringing to confession, those fears that I have, those anxieties that, that weigh on my heart, I, I want freedom. I long to be changed. This is what Jesus wants for us. He wants this transformation. Do you want that transformation for your soul? Do you want that for your marriage, for your family, for the people you're serving? How do we get that? Daily prayer is the number one thing. Daily prayer is the, is the, uh, now again, I'm talking about, we have to go to mass. We need the sacraments. Those are all the essentials. When we start getting into, if I want to not just be a rule follower, I don't want to just do the minimum. I don't want to be just in bounds but I want to be a true disciple. I want to be transformed. We need daily prayer. I want to talk about that daily prayer. Does anyone know where this is? This summer, I had a chance to go to Spain for the first time. I went to Spain uh, because my wife, she is, she is a big fan of St. John of the Cross. And he's from Spain, and we wanted to do a little mini pilgrimage in the footsteps of John of the Cross for our 24th wedding anniversary. So I have all these miles from all the travel work I was able to do. So I'm able to take my wife there using miles, and we got to walk in the footsteps of John of the Cross. And I got to tell you, she loves John of the Cross. She reads everything about John of the Cross. She prays with texts from John of the Cross. She's memorized John of the Cross's poetry. When she hears the name John of the Cross, someone says John of the Cross, she goes like this, oh, John of the Cross. <laughs> if John of the Cross wasn't a saint, I'd be really, really jealous. <laughs> so we went on this pilgrimage to John Cross, and one of the places we went to is Avila in France, and this is where the great Saint Teresa of Avila, they were friends and they worked together, and we got to go to her convent where she was, and John the Cross went there as well. And in the courtyard of the convent, there's these, like, it, the, whole, the whole structure of the courtyard is seven concentric circles. And they each have Roman numerals. So there's Roman number one in the outermost circle. There's Roman number two, and, and you go all the way into the middle, and then finally in the middle, is where you have the cross and Roman numeral number seven. Does anyone know what a what this is alluding to? It's her famous book called The Interior Castle. The Interior Castle, the idea of the Interior Castle is that our souls are a castle and there's a great king dwelling in the innermost chamber of this castle. And that wonderful, loving, noble king is Jesus. And the closer we live more interiorly, the more we live closer to Jesus and in, in the inside of our souls, then the more we experience his warmth, the fire of his love, and the more we become transformed by that fire. And so the goal of the Christian life is to go deeper and deeper into the interior castle. But she writes about how the, one of the challenges is that most people tend to not live an interior life. They live an exterior life, a very active life. They're running around doing all these things in business and they're watching ESPN and sports and busy looking on their phones at social media and taking their kids, driving them all these places and all these activities, giving them the, the best life experience and the best tutors and I got to do all this stuff. And, and they're busy just running all around doing stuff. But they don't live like Mary who keeps and ponders all these things in her heart. What's happening on the inside? Do you ever just pause in the middle of, middle of your busy day and just pause and recall that God is present to you? God is around you. But even more so, by virtue of your baptism, God is dwelling within you. The king is on the inside. Do you ever just pause? You're at a stoplight, and instead of pulling out your phone, do you ever just pause and actually just be aware of God dwelling within you, the king? Because when we live an interior life, we're going to draw closer to those inner circles. 
and the fire of God will transform us evermore. Now, one of the things Teresa says is what we need for this interior transformation to live in the interior castle. There's a certain kind of prayer we need. If we want, you know, many people, when they look at this, they hear about those seven levels of the interior life. And they wonder, oh, I wonder where I am. I'm level two, level five, level seven. How do I get to the next step? Here's something Teresa says. If you want to just enter level one, if you want to just be a, a beginner in the interior life, you want level one, you need a certain kind of prayer. There's many different kinds of prayer in the church. There's a certain kind of prayer that you need in your life every day if you want to begin this journey in the interior castle, to draw closer to the great loving king dwelling within you, to experience the fire of his love mercifully changing your heart. If, 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 if we want that, we need a certain kind of prayer each day in our life. So when I talk about daily prayer, I want to, I'm, this is, I want to be clear. This isn't Edward Sree's idea. This is from many saints, not just St. Teresa of Avila, many saints. This is the Catholic Church's teaching. You read about this kind of prayer in the catechism. What kind of prayer is she talking about? When I've been speaking on prayer, I've been speaking on this topic with lay people like yourselves all over the country the last six weeks or so. Many times people say things like, oh, Dr. Yeah, I pray every day. Oh, really? What, what, what's your prayer life? And they say, I listen to a podcast on the way to work. That's not the kind of prayer Teresa Avila is talking about. Now, I want to be clear, nothing wrong with listening to a podcast. I have a podcast. I hope you listen to it. I hope it blesses you. And maybe you'll learn something you can take to your prayer so it can really enrich us. Nothing wrong with listening to a podcast, but that's listening to a podcast or listening to Catholic radio or pulling out an app and just listening to something is not prayer. It's certainly not the kind of prayer Teresa is talking about. So what is she talking about here? Is she talking about like, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, I say our fathers and Hail Marys sometimes. Hey, that is awesome. That's called vocal prayer. Catechism talks about we need vocal prayer as part of our regular conversation with God. It's wonderful to say those set prayers or even to just talk to God like a friend and say, God, I love you. I praise you. I thank you. Like, like they, th those are vocal prayers. Vocal prayer is a wonderful thing we should have as part of our daily life. But there's something Teresa of Avila is talking, if we want to step in and take that first step in the interior castle and experience more of the fire of God's love, there's another kind of prayer we need every day of our lives. Now, what kind of prayer is this? Well, it's not vocal prayer. Is it devotional prayer? I mean, how many of you pray this prayer here? I saw one of you have a book I wrote on the rosary. I love the rosary. Rosary is an amazing prayer. Sometimes, well, rosary feels like a marathon. I just like the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Same beads, different prayer, shorter. I can fit it in. Hey, great. That's another kind of wonderful prayer. These are devotional prayers. I hope these things enrich your spiritual life. But there's something else we need if we want the fire of God's love to transform our hearts, if we want the fire of God's love to, 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 to shape our marriages, if we want to give the best to our children, this is the kind, there's a certain kind of prayer we need in our daily life and it's more than the rosary. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, no, I do, I do liturgical prayer. I do the, you know, liturgy of the hours. If you've ever done liturgy of the hours, morning prayer or evening prayer, those are wonderful prayers. It's the prayer of the church, the sacraments. The, what's the highest form of prayer? What's the highest and greatest prayer ever? It's the mass. Why is the mass so amazing? It's because of the choir. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, what's the mass so amazing? It's because it's the sacrifice of Christ made present to us. The offering of Jesus, his perfect gift of love to the Father, that sacrifice is made present at every mass so that it can enter into our hearts and we can give our lives as a gift to God more fully. And we allow Jesus' perfect love to change our imperfect love. So it is the greatest form of prayer. But have you ever noticed that you can go to daily Mass, 
maybe go at least go every week, maybe even go to a weekday mass sometimes, but you find yourself not really changed. You find yourself still struggling with the same sins you keep bringing to confession. It's been said that just one Holy Communion is enough to make us a saint. And I've received probably thousands of communions and I'm just a harder work in process. What's happening there? Well, one reason could be because we don't have an interior life. In other words, there's real graces in the sacraments, but those graces aren't meeting the, they're not meeting the fertile soil of a, of a daily prayer life, the kind of prayer Teresa of Avila is talking about, which we'll get to in a moment. But listen to what um, one spiritual writer says, without a prayer life, the sacraments would have a limited effect. The sacraments confer grace, but their effects are stunted because they do not find good soil in which to take root. What kind of soil is the, is the Eucharist receiving in your soul? Do you have this kind of daily prayer life that Teresa of Avila is talking about? What kind of prayer life is this? Does anyone know what kind she talks about? The number one thing you need to just step in, what kind of prayer is it? Uh, Contemplative is even higher. She would put that in the category, but that's like, that's really high prayer. This would be something every ordinary lay person can do. And they've been doing it for 2000 years. It's nothing really esoteric, nothing really complex. It's called meditation. I heard it there. You can read about it in the catechism. Don't think of a Buddhist monk going, hmm. It's really simple. Meditation with the church, Catholic Christian meditation is simply using your mind to reflect. You're not just talking. You're not just saying words and saying prayers and reading something. You're not just going up to the chapel and reading a good Catholic book and learning about the Catholic faith. Again, all those things are good. But meditation is you're using your mind to reflect like Mary, to keep and to ponder in your heart. You're taking time to listen to God. So maybe you're taking a, a, a sacred text like scripture and maybe you're using Lexio Divina. Have you ever heard of that method of prayer, Lexio Divina, where you read a passage from the gospel and maybe you just read a short passage, like a few verses, and you read it over and over, like a couple times, and then you think, what, what, what line stands out to you? What word grabs your attention? And then you pause and you talk to God about it. Or there's another form of prayer famous, it's called Ignatian meditation from St. Ignatius of Loyola. I don't know if you heard that, so you imagine putting yourself in the biblical scene, like you, I shared this morning with some people. You imagine being at the wedding of Cana, and they run out of wine, and you're like one of the servants that are running out of wine. You're panicking, oh my goodness. And what do you do? Then you turn to Jesus finally. And Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And you imagine, what, what is it that I feel like I'm lacking and I don't have anything to give? And how is Jesus going to step into my lack to fill me up? So these are, this is the kind of meditation prayer. And we need this every day, especially those of us in apostolic work. My spiritual director will often say that a, a lay person should have 30 minutes of this quiet meditation every day. But I, I'll be honest, when I share that with people, some people feel overwhelmed. So I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. If you're just beginning, if you haven't really developed the habit of a, a consistent daily prayer life of meditation, you can start, you, we'll start with a discount. You can start with 15 or 20. That's just fine. <laughs> you know, but it, 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 I think it's just important just to get that habit in to realize that we need that time for daily prayer. Now, one of the challenges that come with this is many people just feel like, you know, I, I just don't know how to pray that way. I just don't get a lot of feelings. Like when I pray the rosary, it's really easy because in like less than two minutes, I feel like I accomplished something. I got a decade done. I can check the box. I did something. 
or I can go into the chapel and just read a chapter from some great book. And I feel okay, I got a chapter done. I did something for God. Or I can pray my liturgy of the hours. I got the morning prayer done. Okay, I did something. Again, those are wonderful things. I hope we do that. But when I'm just sitting in the chapel quietly and I'm trying to like pray, and I don't really know how to pray this way. I don't feel like I'm good. I feel like I'm a failure. I don't, I don't know if that if you've ever felt that. Did, do you ever get distracted when you pray in Tulsa? Does your mind wander? And you just feel like, I, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of this. What we want to do is remember, feelings are not the measure of prayer. Just like in a marriage, if I want to measure, do I love my wife? It's not how many romantic feelings do I have? It's, it's an act of the will. That's what love is. It's an act of the will to choose the good of the other. And so I, I just have to show up sometimes. I just, I, I just by being there every day is a gift I'm giving to God. I think about my kid. I told the story with the Focus missionaries recently that one of my kids at two years old, he learned how to climb out of his crib. Oh, and he was getting up in the middle of the night, waking up everybody, wanting to go play soccer at two in the morning. I mean, it was just crazy as a two-year-old. So I'm happy to wake up every night chasing him. Now, this kid is the most joyful, sanguine kid. Even to this day, he's older, he's a teenager now. But if you met him, he's just still like bubbly and he gives his mom big hugs all the time. And he, when he was a little kid, I'd come home from work and he'd see me go, Dada, Dada, Dada. And he'd come running and go jump in my arms. And like, oh, when I had him, I had that like good father, son, you know, daddy feeling. This is awesome. I just love being this kid's dad. But at 2.30 in the morning, I didn't have those feelings. <laughs> I had feelings, but they're the kind of feelings you have to bring to confession. <laughs> but I still had to serve him. I still had to like go chase him down, get him back in his bed. Because love is not about feelings. It's about being faithful. I needed to be a faithful father to him and a father to the rest of the kids that he kept waking up all night and a good husband to Beth so she can get some sleep. Sometimes you just have to show up. And the, the fruitfulness of our prayer isn't about the feelings. It's about just being there. But now another big question people have is they say, I just don't have time. I'm just too busy. I mean, I got so much going on. There's so much at the parish, so much happening on the home front. I don't have time for prayer. But what we want to remember is that we make time for the things that are most essential in life. If we realize that we really need God for everything, we're going to turn to him in prayer. Pope Francis says that the soul needs prayer, like the body needs oxygen, right? So you don't just say, oh, I'm just too busy. I don't have time to breathe. <laughs> I mean, we use that expression, but we take time to breathe. So we, we, we make time for the things we, we, we think we really need, the things we value most. You've, have you ever heard of a guy die because he didn't have time to eat? You know, imagine at the, at the, at the wake, oh, poor Bob. And Bob was just so busy. He had so much going on at the parish. It's so many people entering the church this Easter vigil, and it's just, I mean, all of Lent, he just didn't have time to eat. <laughs> no, no, you make time for what matters most. Do you believe that you need God? How many people here think they need God? Okay, we all get that answer right on a quiz. But the way you live your life, if the angels and saints were watching you, which they are, does the way you live their life reflect, I need you, God, I just need you so much? Because if we realize how much, if we're convinced of how much we need God, we would make a priority, we would make time for him to fill me up. Because so many times, especially in, in marriage and family life, and especially in, in ministry and apostolic work in the parish, I, I, I can feel exhausted. I'm just burnt out. I'm just constantly giving. I'm going from one thing to the next. And if I'm feeling that exhaustion, I'm feeling like I'm just running around all the time. 
It could be because I'm trying to do it all. And when I'm trying to do it all, and I'm not living an interior life like Mary, keeping and pondering the heart, I'm not listening to the king, dwelling with the king inside of me. I'm trying to do it by myself. We have to remember the primacy of the interior life, that it's it's what, what's happening on the inside that matters most. Mother Teresa, when she was asked, she starts her order and she's serving the poorest of the poor in India, and then she's being asked by bishops around the world, could you come and serve in my diocese? Can you come to South America? Can you come to Canada? Can you come to Asia? She's being asked by bishops around the world. The Pope is begging her, could you go out and do more? And she's just so limited and so small, and she doesn't have the resources, and she certainly doesn't have the time. And yet there's all these demands, and they're really important. I mean, the bishops are calling, the popes are calling. So what does she do? What Mother Teresa decided to do was, you know, she, I just need more time. So she cut back a little bit on prayer so she could do the sacred work for the kingdom. Is that what Mother Teresa did? She didn't do that. No way. You know what, what did she did? Who, who knows what she did? She actually prayed more. She started doing a holy hour. It required all the sisters to do an extra holy hour. That's the supernatural mentality we need to have. And I, I shared this a little bit with some of the folks earlier tonight, today, is that too often when we view our problems, we view it like a secular person. A secular person, when there's a problem and there's a lot of work and there's a lot that needs to be done, you just, you just got to get more time working on it. Just spend more time working on it. That's how people on Wall Street and Silicon Valley solve their problems. They go and spend more time working on it. We as Christians do not wear that secular lens. That we believe that what's more important than my work and my time and my energy and my talent and my skills, more important than that, is Jesus. Jesus can do so much more than what I can do. Now, he wants me to give the best of my mind and attention and use my gifts and talents, of course. But am I convinced that my talents, my gifts, my organizational skills, my music skills, my speaking skills or retreat planning skills, whatever it is, is, is just so small compared to our God who is so big? Am I convinced of that? Because a Catholic lens says God matters so much more than my six-step planning process or my three-year strategy for the parish or how I organize the, the retreat and how I put this together, this amazing lesson plan. Again, I need to do all that. But that is so small compared to what our God wants to do. Lord, I need you. And if I'm convinced that I need you, I will spend more time with you in prayer. You know that song? Do you know the song from Matt Marr? Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. When we don't take time for meditation every day and we're running around doing stuff and doing all the nice devotional prayers and checking off boxes in our prayer life, but we're not quietly spending time with him. It's as if we're saying to Jesus, Lord, I don't need you. I don't need you. I'm too busy. I don't need you. I've got this. And when we do that, our ministry suffers. I'm not able to give the best of myself to those youth, to the people in RCIA, to the people in Sacramento Prep, because I'm giving them just me. I'm giving them my talent, my gift, my planning, and that's so small compared to Jesus. Mother Teresa prayed this beautiful prayer. Every day she had her sisters pray this prayer. And in this prayer, they say, Jesus, shine through us and be so in us that every soul we come in contact with may feel your presence in our soul. Let them look up and see no longer us, but only Jesus. The people you're serving in the parish, the children you're serving in your home, your spouse, when they look up, do they see more than just you? 
or are they encountering Christ in you, radiating through you? Because here's the thing, I, my prayer, I need a daily prayer life, I need daily meditation because I owe it to God, first and foremost. Uh, secondly, it's good for the transformation of my soul, the fire transforming me as we've been looking at. But there's a third reason, other people are depending on me to pray. When I don't have a daily prayer life, my marriage is, is gonna suffer. I'm not able to give the best of myself to Beth. I love Beth, she's an amazing woman, but my love falls short because I have weaknesses and pride and selfishness and hurts from my past and things that just keep me from loving her the way she needs me to love. I don't love perfectly. I need perfect love, Jesus, to radiate through me so I can be the best husband I can be for her. My kids need me to pray every day. When I don't pray every day, I'm not able to give the best of myself to them because the best of myself isn't me. It's Jesus radiating through me. And so my marriage will, other people will end up suffering. My wife, my children, the people in my ministry, the people that read my books, I pray that they encounter so much more than, oh, Dr. Sheree, that was a nice turn of phrase. You really organized that book well. I mean, I know God wants to use those things, but more important than that, I pray it's flowing from a deep interior life. May every soul we come in contact with look up and see no longer us, but see Jesus shining through us. There's my wife. She needs me to pray. She'll tell me, like there'll be a day. Just last week, she, she, uh, there was something happened over the weekend. She goes, did you pray yet today? <laughs> my kids, my kids need me to pray. They're dependent on, on me having a good interior life. We need a life of prayer. This is the primacy of, of our interior life. But I wanna close with a reflection on a couple other things here, because I can throw this out there that we need a prayer life, but let's be honest, prayer is hard. Prayer is not always easy. We often will struggle in our prayer life. We show up, we don't know what to do, okay? I'm supposed to do this meditation. I don't know how to do this. I feel like I'm a failure. I feel like I'm good when I'm leading and I'm organizing and I'm teaching and I'm planning, but I don't feel, I just don't feel like I'm good here. Why is it so hard? If God wants me to pray and it's so important for me to pray, other people are depending on me praying, why do I struggle so much? Why is it dry? Why is there a lot of darkness in this prayer? Why am I distracted all the time? Why do I feel restless? I just want to be anywhere else but here right now. I just don't feel like I'm really good at this. Why does this happen? I want to share with you some insights. St. Catherine of Siena, one of my favorite saints, she wrote a letter explaining why we struggle in prayer. One thing she said is sometimes it's not us. It's we're struggling, but the devil is discouraging us. The devil wants us to think our prayer is not pleasing to God, she said. Have you ever had that experience where you felt your prayer wasn't pleasing to God? Like it wasn't a good time in prayer? Have you ever had that? Well, well, that, that could be the devil discouraging you because the devil knows how important prayer is. He knows that if you want to start getting inside your interior castle, you need that daily meditation. And if souls start that process of trying to live a daily meditation prayer life, the devil will discourage us and say, you stink at that prayer. You're not good at this. You're not getting anything out of this. It's so boring. Just go read a book. Just go pull out those rosary beads. He wants to keep, not that those, I mean, he'd rather have us do those kinds of things. Those aren't bad, but he doesn't want us to go into our interior life, she says. And so he'll discourage us. So if you've ever, ever had those thoughts, I stink at prayer, I'm not good at this, I don't get anything out of this, I don't know if I should bother doing this kind of prayer anymore, know that that's not from God. It is from the devil discouraging us because he knows how powerful. If we start living in our interior castle, he can never get us. Second thing Catherine Siena highlights is that, well, when we experience that, you know, struggle in prayer, we're discouraged, the devil's you know, making us sad about our prayer life, what do we do? She says, remember your intention. Remember that the intention to pray is itself 
the beginning of prayer. And we can offer our intention to God. This is a great point St. Thomas Aquinas highlights, that we might not be able to be attentive during our prayer time. We're not angels. We might, our minds are going to wander. But Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas says, it is not necessary that prayer should be attentive throughout because the force of the original intention with which one sets about praying renders the whole prayer meritorious. So if I come to God with a good intention, Lord, I want to give you this time in prayer. I really want to, oh shoot, oh no, my notes are all destroyed. In all things, God works for good in those who love him. Okay. <laughs> it was only one page, thanks be to God. Okay. There we go. Anyway, I got the talk memorized, but I think it's pretty good. Yeah, sorry. Oh, my watch suffered more. Um, if anyone has, would you mind helping me there? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but th this is the, the, the point to remember that if I come with a good intention, Lord, I want to give you this. I'm going to give you this time. I want to, I want to serve you. And it doesn't, and it goes badly to know if I, my good intention is itself a gift I'm giving God. I think about my, my kids once on Mother's Day, they wanted to give my wife some flowers. They went in the backyard, picked some flowers in the backyard in the field behind us. But the kind of flowers they got weren't beautiful, spectacular flowers like this, you know? They picked a bunch of weeds <laughs> and they put them in a vase, filled them up with water and waiting for mommy to come down. Now, when I say weeds, I want to be clear, it wasn't even like pretty weeds, you know, like dandelions at least kind of look like flowers. No, they were more like this. <laughs> I mean, they're these ugly, pointy weeds that look like they came out of Mordor. <laughs> um, and they're all excited. And Beth, Beth comes down. And she, they go, here, Mommy, these are for you. And Beth sees them. And she's got a little smile. But she says, thank you, girls. This is so awesome. Because she saw not just what was in the vase. She saw what was in their hearts. That, yes, these aren't the prettiest flowers. But they desired with a good intention to give their mommy a gift. They were trying to express love. And I share that story because when you pray and you feel like my prayer life looks like this, or I feel like my vase is empty, I just don't have anything to give to God. Know that God doesn't see what's inside your vase, he sees what's inside your heart. And if you came with a good intention trying to give your best and it doesn't go well, that alone is a great gift. True story, Mother Teresa was walking out of the chapel with a priest, a friend of mine who did a lot of retreats for her. And the, and the minute, and the sisters. And he had a rough time in prayer. It kind of felt like this. And he walks out of his holy hour feeling a little down about his prayer life. He didn't say anything to Mother Teresa, but as they're walking out, they're planning the retreat and what's going to be the next things after lunch. And all of a sudden, Mother Teresa just stops, looks him in the eye and says, Father, never leave the chapel feeling discouraged. Never feel like you accomplish nothing. Give God that nothing. And then she starts walking and says, okay, so after lunch, let's do that. And he's like, whoa, she just read my soul because he, he hadn't said anything to her about it. These are the exact words. If at the time of prayer or meditation, it seems to you that not only you've been distracted in your prayer, but that you have done nothing at all, never leave that time of prayer angry or bitter with yourself. First, turn to God and give God that nothing. Simply showing up day after day, even if the prayer is struggling, even if I don't get these great consolations and insights, simply being faithful every day. I'm giving God a gift because love doesn't reside in what's in the vase, the final product of your prayer life. Love resides in the will, in your heart. St. Faustina, any St. Faustina fans, you know what she said about this? She said that 
you know, when, when we have those moments in prayer where it doesn't go well, an act of trust that my prayer is valuable to God, that is doing something so profound in my soul, an act of trust in those times of darkness may be giving God more glory than times of spectacular prayer. Here are her words exactly. One act of trust in such moments gives greater glory to God than whole hours passed in prayer filled with consolations. See, what God explained to St. Catherine is that many times he may withdraw his feeling, like you may, may not feel his presence, but it doesn't mean God isn't there. God said to, to Catherine, I may take away the feeling of consolation and closeness, but I do not take away my grace. So remember, by being there, even when it's dark, even when you're distracted, God is there and he's your, your, your iron rod is in the fire. And you may not feel it, but it's changing you. It's transforming you and it's giving God greater glory. And he's drawing you to a deeper friendship with him. So that's the closing things here. When we struggle, what do we want to do? Persevere. We trust that our prayer is, is valuable in those moments that we can give God our intention. And God might be inviting me to a deeper form of prayer than just saying prayers and vocal prayers and devotions. And it, it's going to be hard, but this is the fruit of being like Mary, keeping and pondering in our heart. Okay, I'm gonna pause there just for sake of time because I wanna honor everybody's time, but I'll just mention this, that um, this is my brand new book on this topic. It's called When You Pray, and it's 30 short reflections on the themes of trust, surrender, and the transformation of your soul. This is not a book about prayer. This is a book to use in prayer. This is a book that you take to the chapel or in your living room, wherever you pray, and it's, it, it's about how to cooperate with God in prayer, how to meet God in the struggles of prayer. How do I grow in greater trust of God in my life? How do I discern his will? How do I surrender to his plan? How do I experience the transformation he wants to work in my soul? And it's not my ideas. I should just say, honestly, I'm just sharing with you the wisdom of so many saints that I know have made a difference in countless souls. So I always tell people, if they get this book, do not read this book. It's not a book you just read. It's a book you pray with. If you read two or three paragraphs without stopping and talking to Jesus about it in prayer, then I feel like I failed as a, miserably as an author. This book is meant to be used to help you talk to God, to listen to God, and allow the fire of his love to change us. That's what we long for. Last image. Do you know at the Easter Vigil how it's all dark in the church? And then you take one candle and you, you light the candle and then you go to the next person and then all of a sudden, within a just like less than a minute, the whole church is lit up. I want you to think of this for your marriage and your family. Do you want a family life that is has the light of Christ radiating in your home? Do you want your parish, why don't you think about your parish ministry or your school, wherever you're serving? Do you want your parish community to be a light with the flame of God, the fire of God? What we wanna do, if we want that fire, where do we find that fire? It's not out here, it's where? In the interior castle, in daily meditation. So if we have daily meditation, we'll give more in our marriages and our families and in our parish ministries. But when we don't have that, it's as if we're just handing out candles handing out candles. People love getting candles. It's beautiful. And those candles are nice. And I'm doing something kind. I'm sharing something. I'm giving candles, but I'm giving just a candle. I want to give the warmth and the light of Jesus. Jesus shining through me. May every soul we come in contact with look up and see no longer us, but Christ shining through us. Amen? Amen.